0: rejoin the live service in the sanctuary hey everybody awesome to be back in god's house worshiping god so i don't want to take up more of his time because we have an amazing speaker today with an amazing message so i want to introduce dr jb hickson today amen thank you brother Amen. Well, hello, Candlelight. It is awesome to be back. I uh, wish the circumstances were a little different, but uh, so thankful, as always, to to come to our church away from church. That's the way Wendy and I feel about Candlelight. We've been coming here for over 10 years and uh, just can't get enough of, uh, of our friends at Candlelight. So thanks for uh, letting us uh, come back. And I want to just make a couple of sort of preliminary remarks, and then we'll dive into my uh, message for Uh, Today, you know, it's been not quite a year since my last visit here. was last October, and boy, what a difference a year makes! I mean, what an incredible start to 2020. By the way, how many of you are enjoying your free six month trial of the New World Order? Amen. (laughs) So that's uh, that's always good. The problem is, I think we forgot to we put in our credit card and we forgot to cancel the membership because they're continuing to charge it every month, and this thing doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. Uh, but we'll say more about that. want to say hello to some uh, uh, friends of ours at our home church, Plum Creek, there in the Denver area that may be watching. And also all of our friends at Not By Works Ministries that uh, uh, might be uh, uh, tuning in. And then wanted to mention, just so I can get it out of the way... Um, uh, since our, my last visit here, I've got two new books. So this is numbers eight and nine. And uh, you guys have always been so gracious to us and wanted to make sure you knew that I've got top ten reasons some people go to hell. So kind of an edgy title. Uh, however, I will say it's not as edgy as what the publisher put on the back, which is you can go to hell, but you don't have to, but you don't have to. So anyway, was that too long of a pause there between... I, w- I mean, I was trying to balance between the being catchy and not being a little over the line. But anyway, uh, top 10 reasons some people go to hell. So that's out there just brand new. I finished that up during the shutdown when we couldn't, a lot of our events got canceled in the spring. And then also, Weekly Words of Life is uh, on a much lighter note, a collection of 52 many of them humorous sort of devotionals that uh, the idea is it's called Weekly Words of Life, uh, 52 devotionals to warm your heart and strengthen your faith. Read one uh, a week, just kind of read it several times during the week and meditate on that passage of scripture. Uh, One in light of what I'm going to be speaking about this morning that if I can get to the table of context that you might want to look up is called Rain, Rain, that's R-E-I-G-N, Rain, Rain, Go Away. And that's a number 17. So anyway, talking a little bit. So even in my devotionals, I can't help but talk about the New World Order. But, uh, but anyway, uh, well, uh, I want to begin by uh, talking about a, an experience in God's Word that came to my mind over the last 24 hours as I was getting ready to come here. I've changed my message twice in light of the events of the last 72 hours uh, related to candlelight. Uh, and the Lord kind of brought my attention to an experience that we're all familiar with. It's in the early days of Christ's ministry, within the first year of his ministry. He's uh, on a boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Jesus, just as they're crossing the sea, it was not a long journey, but he decides to take a nap. And uh, as you recall, during his nap, what happens? A storm arises. And so. Uh, evidently, this was uh, a little bit worse than a typical rain shower. You know, the, the disciples were seafaring guys. I mean, they were fishermen. They knew the sea. And so they would not have responded the way they did had this not been more than your average storm. But it, it absolutely terrified them. And in uh, fact, the Greek word phobia is used there. Uh, really, really scared them to death. And they went and they woke Jesus up. You remember the story. And they said, Lord rescue us. We're about to drown. And so Jesus' response is interesting. You know, this account is, it occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, the nature of it is such that we think it's very possible this type of thing happened multiple times throughout Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. And uh, so Jesus' response in Matthew's account is, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Mark has Him saying, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? <laughs> and Luke has Jesus saying, where is your faith? Maybe he said all of those things, but it was a pointed, uh, convicting observation. And uh, so then the, the, he, he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. We love that part of the story. Um, you know, gee, God controls the weather I mean, the government also controls it if you know much about geoengineering, but God ultimately controls it, right? And uh, back then there was no geoengineering. So, and he rebuked them, and, 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 it, and, it, and there was a great calm. And then what really caught my eye as I went back and reread this, these accounts was the disciples' response then. I mean, it was interesting enough that they were fearful when the storm arose, But then after he calms the storm, they say, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Remember, he'd been with them for several months, maybe almost a year of his ministry, and yet they still didn't quite understand. They'd done miracles. They were there at Cana. They'd seen him heal people, the centurion's son, other miracles they'd seen. But they still didn't quite get it. But when he did this, they knew. Because the Old Testament clearly talks about God, Yahweh, being the one who controls the, the, the wind, the sea, all of that, the clouds. So how many of us can relate to the disciples? It was very convicting to me. You know, we, we have faith. We trust God for the most important thing, which is our eternal destiny, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And hopefully if you're here today, there's been a point in your life where you recognized your need for a Savior, that you were on the road to hell, no hope in this world, but only Jesus can save you, so you trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, and in that moment of faith, you were born again, and we understand that. We under, those of us who know the Lord, we understand that that's what it takes is faith, and yet having trusted Christ for the most important thing in our lives, then when these little storms come up, we cower and fear. And we forget that the same God who paid the penalty for sin and defeated death, hell, and the grave can easily handle a little problem on the Sea of Galilee. So the Bible has a lot to say about faith. Uh, I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews right now and uh, a series called Trusting God in Trying Times, very appropriate for what we're facing these days. And Hebrews frequently talks about Having a steadfast faith, not casting away your faith, which has great reward. Looking unto the author and finisher of our faith. Faith. I don't know about you, but these past six, seven months, whatever it's been, it's been pretty hard for me to keep my eyes off of the storm and on the Lord. Can you relate? I mean, this world, this country, this pandemic, this government, the here and the now, It's hard not to be riveted. And then if we do stay riveted to that, we become fearful. And, of course, the mainstream state-run media is not helping. Um, And the reason I changed my message for today is that when CNN decided to disparage a man of God and Candlelight Fellowship, our church away from church, less than 72 hours ago, man, I could hardly stand it. Uh, I mean, I had seen the local... uh, Coverage. What's the uh, the poke the poke me or the spokesman or something, whatever it is. All they do is poke people and pick a fight. But anyway, whatever that. No, I'd seen that. And you know, you want to pick on Paul? That's fine. He 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 can handle it. I even pick on him now and then. But you pick on his wife, Brenda. Man, I I I mean, I wanted to just. Well, I wanted to get in the flesh. But anyway. But CNN, you know, you know, I thought, well, of course, it's CNN, so what do you expect, right? They have an agenda. But it hit pretty close to home, and I know for you all it was a direct hit on home. I mean, for me, it's just a friend and a great church that we love. But So then my thoughts turned as I worked through the, 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 the anger to where they should have been all along, and that is the Word of God. And I thought of Psalm 11, and, you know, as many times as I've taught through and preached through different psalms. I don't know if I've ever preached a message like I'm going to this morning from Psalm 11. But take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 11. It's written by David. And I want to make some comparisons. And let me give you a caveat. I'm not necessarily comparing King David with Pastor Paul. In fact, my granddaughter has a little pictorial Bible and it has photos in it. And so I can tell you with certainty that King David was a lot better looking than Pastor Paul. Um, So... (laughs) that's about where the comparison stops. But I do think there are some lessons, there are some lessons that we can learn from this experience that David recounts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 1, David says this, in the Lord I put my trust. You know, as a principle of life, David always sought refuge from his enemies in the Lord. Now, not always immediately, which gives us comfort, right? We see a lot of Psalms where David is, is fearful and he's afraid. And like Psalm 13, he says, God, are you silent? So he, But he always works his way through the crisis of the moment and lands firmly on the side of faith. Here was a, a shepherd boy turned king, a man after God's own heart who failed God in major ways, and, and we can relate. We can relate to that struggle of fear versus faith, can't we? And so this is one of those psalms where he starts out, In the Lord I have put my trust. And he appears to be, in this psalm, fleeing from an enemy, which there were no shortage of enemies for Israel in David's day. Uh, But we don't know the exact background, the exact incident. Sometimes the psalmists tell us that with an inscription. We don't know much about the circumstances that led to him writing this psalm. Um, But we do know that he expressed confidence that... Even though lawful authority and common sense might perish, sound familiar? The godly can always trust in God. The godly can always trust in God. He is David's stronghold. He's our stronghold. But in this psalm, as we see here in verse 1, David's counselors, and we all have counselors like this, they just knew that this was going to be the end of society as they knew it and they urged David to flee as a bird to your mountain. In other words, to seek refuge in the mountain. In the ancient Near East, the mountains were the place of strength and protection. Uh, This was before, you know, the military drones could strike you down. This was before NDAA and all that stuff. We didn't have that kind of technology. So the mountains were the highest vantage point, the best place to be. And pagan religions and pagan gods looked at the mountains as that's where they would build their statues because they were closer to the heavenlies and the stars and, and all their pagan you know, idols they thought were closer that way. But from a pragmatic perspective, yeah, the mountains is where you'd go. You see danger coming, head to the mountains because then you can see the enemies coming. You kind of have a, a better vantage point. And so they so they apparently wanted him to flee. And David says, how can you say this to my soul? Soul there in Hebrew is nephesh; It just means uh, to me, basically, my life. How can you say that to me? Not just the immaterial part of me, but to, to me. How, why would you say flee as a bird to your mountain? And uh, so he sort of rebukes them. And then notice what he says in verse 2. For, you know, this is this is him repeating what This counselor's perspective is, for look, the wicked bend their bow. I mean, anybody feel like there's a massive big arrow being drawn back in the bow today by Satan and his co-conspirators? So the wicked were attacking David and the people of Israel. He was the target of their deadly missiles. I mean, they may have been literally shooting arrows, not an uncommon occurrence in that day, or it may have been talking about verbal attacks, but we can relate. Uh, Satan and his demons and their earthly co-conspirators in the New World Order agenda have certainly bent their bow. So we can learn from this. And He goes on, they, they shoot, sec- shoot secretly at the upright in heart, secretly. Satan always works that way, doesn't he? he? He does not like to do things right out in the open. He's, he does things under pretense and deception. We're going to talk about that more in a second. But as we look around us, we see uh, the Satan's Luciferian elite secretly trying to usher in a world system of total global dominance and control, secretly. They're doing it under pretense, a pretense of a pandemic, for example. that's the way Satan works, right? Satan Satan doesn't come up and say, hey, here's a nice, big, shiny apple. When you take a bite of it, you're going to drop over dead. So have at it. Hope it works out well. He doesn't tell us the full story. That's the way he operates. Jesus reminds us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Everything he speaks is done out of false pretenses. And then notice David's faint hearted counselors evidently felt that the very foundations of their nation were in danger of being destroyed. If the foundations are destroyed, woe is me! What can the righteous do? What can we do? They were thinking, of course, in their day of the Mosaic law, the Judaic institutions. They, they, they felt distressed and panicked over the possibility that this could be the end. I'll confess, I've been there. Many faint hearted people have similarly looked around us today and and see foundational elements of our society under attack. Here in America, for 244 years, we've been built upon the foundations of a constitutional republic with certain inalienable rights, and yet we see those being shredded. What can we do? And then I love this. David says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's what we forget. David's perspective was that Yahweh is on His throne, and that nothing happening on earth, though it may seem like it's going to shake the foundations of the earth, is going to shake God's throne. It's not like God's sitting on the throne, and an earthquake happens, or a heaven quake happens, and He goes, oh, well, I didn't see that coming, and falls off the throne. It doesn't work that way. Yahweh is sitting in perfect control over the affairs of Israel and the affairs of the world. And Guess what? The affairs of the United States. So the pagans thought their gods dwelt in heavenly temples, but Yahweh is the only one who really did. The Lord is in his holy. Holy there means one of a kind, nothing like it. There's only one temple, it's God's, right? And the Lord's throne, only one throne, and it's in heaven. And we see time and again, if we take time to let the fog lift a little bit, and really focus on faith instead of fear, where we should be all along, that time and again God proves Himself faithful, even in this latest little cowardly attack from CNN. Uh, Pastor Paul was telling me yesterday that, you know, they linked in this hit piece that they did to, I guess it was Paul's Facebook page or the church's you know youtube page or something because they wanted to show a link to where pastor paul talked about the the virus and uh, the church's response which by the way for anyone who takes the time to watch it was an extremely reasonable reasoned and critically thought out approach that anyone should have if you're sick either stay home or wear a mask whatever just be be normal when you have the virus and you have a flu or something be wise we don't need the government to tell us what to wear and when to worship but anyway, they, they, like they so often do, that they, they twisted it, and but here's the way God showed that He was in control. The link that they sent people to, if you keep listening to it or watching it, presents the gospel in perfect clarity. <laughs> so, so here's CNN as actually a tool in God's hand to lead people to the gospel. Now, if that's not an indication of God's sovereignty, I don't know... Uh, what is, right? Uh, can anything good come out of Atlanta? That's what I have heard. I think that's the NIV version somewhere. I don't know. Um, so, But notice he goes on, his, God's eyes behold, His eyelids test the sun. So, man, this is an anthropomorphism, basically saying God is watching all that's going on. God's on His throne watching what's happening on the earth, and none of this surprises Him. He's in full control. God is not unaware of of david and his people's plight and guess what he's not unaware of our plight either Um, he uses the word test there at the end of verse four and then again here at the beginning of verse five the lord tests the righteous now that word in english sort of implies like it's a something you have to pass or fail that kind of but that's not the particular word that's used here in uh, hebrew it's the word banah and it's used 28 times in the old testament twice here in psalm 11, and it literally means to search out or examine. Aren't you glad we have a God who searches out and examines and steps in when needed? That's exactly what He's doing. He's searching out. He's watching. He's on His throne. His eyes behold. His eyelids are there. He's watching. And the wicked, by the way, the one who loves violence, God's going to handle them as well, David reminds us. He goes on. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What a flowery way to say they're gonna get theirs, basically. Um, so God's going to punish those who oppose His will. I mean, we might wish it would happen sooner. We do. I mean, I mean, if we took a vote today, we'd all say the rapture today, right? Uh, No one says, nah, I love it. Let's just keep going. Well, I can wait another year or two. (laughs) But it's not up to us. God's in control. And, uh, you know, perhaps David here is, of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but perhaps he has in mind the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But that fire and brimstone there can can also be translated in Hebrew, snares. In other words, David is describing a final judgment for the wicked where they're going to be trapped. They won't be any way out, right? That's their destiny, scorching judgment. And then he closes out, for the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. Now, again, it's an anthropomorphism, but the idea here is that God loves the righteous, and he's going to reward the righteous. And what awaits those who persevere in the faith, that is, who continue to steadfastly trust him, is the special blessings in the kingdom. Our eternal destiny is not based upon whether or not we our faith is strong. Thank the Lord, right? Aren't you glad that whether I go to heaven or not isn't based upon how much I trust God? We'd all be in trouble. My eternal destiny based on the promise of Christ who said, you, I give you eternal life, you shall never perish. So that part's settled. Positionally, I am in Christ. But for those who persevere, as the writer of Hebrews said, you know, God is a rewarder of those who trust Him, right? And here David speaks of that reward of, of being special intimacy with God. In other words, there's a greater prize than physical safety. That's hard for us in our human minds bound by time, space, and matter to to really comprehend. But life is about more than what we can see and feel and touch. So whatever it was that the Israelites faced in David's day, they were so afraid that they thought the core principles of their nation would be shaken. The foundations would be destroyed. 3,000 years later, we find ourselves in a similar situation, don't we? Is this the end? I mean, we are one nation under God, and the fingerprints of God are all over uh, this country. 244 years old now. And, and, you know, certainly anybody who understands the beginnings of our nation understands there were mixed agendas from the founding fathers, Uh, they weren't all God fearing, Bible believing Christians. But go back to the Pilgrim days and the Puritan days; they were. But regardless of mixed mixed agendas and, and motives and all that, there's no question. As you, if you look back over our history, that the fingerprints of God are everywhere. This is a nation that has allowed for more expansion of Christianity and preaching of the gospel and people coming to faith than any nation in the history of the world. And yet. As Jedidiah Morris said in 1799, when the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government must fall with them. In other words, we were one nation under God, whether or not the founding fathers declared it to be so or not, God is on the throne. In fact, one nation or God wasn't so much as a declaration or a decision as it was an observation. (laughs) We are one nation under God. And yet a lot has happened since those early days when William Bradford and the Mayflower pilgrims and Puritans landed on the shores of what would become Massachusetts back in 1620. Some 150 years later, the founding fathers acknowledged the obvious. As I said, it was an acknowledgement, God is on the throne. But 244 years after that, today, where are we? What do we do when the nation we love so dearly becomes the nation we fear? Or, to put it in David's terms, if the foundations are destroyed, what are we to do? What are we to do? Is America's biblical foundation being destroyed? Our constitutional republic is is predicated upon certain God-given rights, inalienable rights. And when those rights begin to get trampled, we have a problem. Freedoms like association and the freedom of assembly, the freedom of movement, or the freedom of speech. You know, Benjamin Franklin astutely reminded us that we're not a democracy. A democracy is just two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. A liberty, liberty, however, is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. We are a constitutional republic, and we've abandoned our moorings. And yet, as Alexander Tyler noted, about the same time as the 13 original colonies were drafting our constitution, he said a democracy, by its nature, is always temporal, temporary. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy will continue to exist up until the time the voters discover that they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse due to loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. You know, historically, throughout human history, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been about 200 years. We're 244 years old. That means we're living on borrowed time. And during those 200 years, again, going back to Tyler, these nations have always followed the following cycle. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. Abundance. But from abundance to complacency, complacency soon turns into apathy and apathy to dependence and then dependence back into bondage. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I believe the foundations are being destroyed before our very eyes. You know, there are some things that Satan doesn't even have to hide anymore. (laughs) You know, a lie told often enough becomes the truth, right? And so Time Magazine, for example, blatantly came right out and said, does it even matter anymore, our Constitution? And the cover art shows a Constitution going through the shredder. Does it really matter anymore? I mean, I could spend, and we've got several DVDs out there that go into great, much greater detail about this, The Great Last Day's Deception, uh, uh, an entire full-length DVD on uh, red, white, and bad, um, Illuminating the New World Order, several uh, come to mind. So we could spend hours talking about ways in which our foundations are being destroyed, but I want to focus on just three amendments from the Bill of Rights, just three. First of all, let's start with the First Amendment, the freedom of religion and speech and press and assembly, right? Is that under attack? Well, you better believe it is. Uh, Have you been to YouTube or Google or uh, Facebook or any of those places lately? They're totally censoring anything that doesn't agree with the state-run narrative, which is, of course, the Luciferian narrative. Uh, try speaking out against LGBTQ. I mean, have we really come to the point in our country where you quote a Bible verse that teaches God's clear divine design for males and females, which, by the way, is an attack on the very image of God and man, Genesis 1, 26, 27. My dear, one of my dearest friends, maybe you've heard of him, Pastor Paul Van Nooy told me one time when he was on my radio show that he sees the attack on gender, which I call the gender surrender movement, as one of the most demonic attacks in history. I'm sure he's probably said that from this very pulpit. Um, you know, when, when, when you see all unauthorized comments about vaccines and the fact that they contain aborted baby parts, which is widely known. I mean, it's on the actual, uh, you know, Uh, insert. (laughs) Uh, Look it up. Or watch my Spirit of the Antichrist series next week, the next installment of that. I'm going to talk about that. So clearly, we don't really have the freedom of speech anymore. And if you know much about Operation Mockingbird, which was a CIA operation, started in the 50s, still continues to this day. It came out widely exposed during the church committee hearings. Uh, Clearly, it's all controlled, whether print media, radio, television, internet now. David Rockefeller uh, very plainly stated it in a speech to the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, when he said, we're grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings, the CFR meetings, and they've respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years, right? It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if they had told the real story instead of just what we wanted them to tell. a big new Brzezinski, another globalist, uh, worked in the Carter res- uh, administration, the Johnson administration. He was Reagan's foreign intelligence advisor. He said, soon the public will be unable to reason or think for themselves. They'll only be able to parrot the information they've been given on the previous night's news, and that's by design. But this is nothing new. Media has always been a propaganda mechanism. Perhaps that's why Thomas Jefferson once said, those who don't read the newspapers know more than those who do. (laughs) Turn off the mainstream media. And I promised not to get too political, and I was pretty good behavior on my first... But, I mean, I'm done after this, so... I mean, what's, what's Pastor Paul going to do? I was afraid he might call security between the service. Don't let him speak the second time. But, you know. So I'll just mention and then leave it at that, and you can talk to me offline. Fox News is mainstream media. Turn it off. So uh, here's this this will blow you away if you haven't seen this. This is from July 30th of this year, so just six weeks ago. Forbes magazine, mainstream article, telling us, me and you, hey, don't do your own research. I'm serious. Whatever you do, don't think critically or think for yourself. Just do what the government tells you to do. Listen to this article by Ethan uh, Seagull. I'll tell you some of the quotes. He said, quote, research both sides and make up your mind. It's simple, straightforward, common sense advice. And when it comes to issues like vaccinations, climate change, and the novel coronavirus, it can be dangerous, destructive, and even deadly. The techniques that most of us use to navigate most of our decisions in life, gathering information, evaluating it based on what we know, and choosing a course of action, basically thinking, uh, can lead to spectacular failures when it comes to a scientific matter. Because you're not as smart as we are. Uh, The reason for this is simple. Most of us lack the relevant scientific expertise needed to adequately evaluate that research on our own. In our own fields, you know, we're aware of the full suite of data. But, and how the pieces fit together. But when laypersons, that's you and me, espouse opinions on matters, on those matters, it's immediately clear to us, to us, the elite, where the gaps in their understanding are and where they have misled themselves in their reasoning. Now, watch this. Unless we start evaluating the actual expertise that legitimate experts have spent lifetimes developing, then, quote, doing our own research could lead to immeasurable, unnecessary suffering. Just step up, get on the train, and don't ask any questions. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that's just one quick example that the First Amendment has been shredded. Let's uh, talk about the Second Amendment, um, you know, the, the freedom, to, the right to keep and bear arms, right? Well, I mean, this has been under attack for decades, you know. We see everywhere you go, no guns allowed. What do you think this is, a free country, right? Of course, whenever you see a no guns allowed sign, what they're really saying is no weapons allowed. Attention criminals, this is a defense-free crime zone. Uh, All law-abiding patrons of this establishment have been disarmed for your convenience. (laughs) Come right on in. And and yet we all know that the experts fully agree gun control works, right? (laughs) A couple of years ago, there was a demonstration uh, to get rid of guns Uh, in Washington, D.C., and to make their point, supporters of gun control left their shoes all across the lawn. Maybe you saw that. Of course, nobody said anything about another pile of shoes nearly 75 years earlier left by the victims of gun control. So, yeah, all in favor of gun control, raise your right hand, absolutely. Uh, So, how will you defend yourself? That's the question, right? How are you going to defend yourself? Um, The great theologian Willy Wonka, I think, said it best. He reminds us that when seconds count, always remember the police are minutes away. So if your first instinct in a crisis is to pick up the phone, you probably need to rethink that. You know, we live in a society where pizza gets to your house faster than the police. The national average response time—I looked this up for 911 calls. National average is 23 minutes. Might be worth mentioning too that the average response time of a 357 is 1,400 feet per second. <laughs> so there's two ways to shield yourself from a violent attack. It's your your choice. So yeah, I think the Second Amendment clearly, and we could go on and on. Again, this is just—I'm just barely scratching the surface on some of the things we deal with in other. Uh, other presentations. Uh, But what about the Fourth Amendment? This will be the last one that I look at. There are so many ways that our Fourth Amendment freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures has come under attack. Um, But before we talk about the big one that's really on everybody's mind today, we have to do some background research and talk about the Hegelian dialectic The Hegelian dialectic, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel was a German philosopher, died in 1831, but he established this paradigm that basically you create a problem that will have an anticipated reaction so that you can then swoop in with a solution, which is really what you wanted all along anyway, right? Called problem, reaction, solution, or synthesis, or thesis, antithesis, synthesis is what they call it. Um, So let's look at a couple of examples. Let's say the Luciferian agenda is to shut down the alternative media, which is what we see happening now. Well, we need a crisis so that people will beg for us to basically take control of it. Well, we're going to create fake news, right? That's why you saw that all over the place and mainstream public figures and presidents and everyone else talking about fake news, right? And and that causes a public outcry. Man, we got a fake news problem. We need somebody to tell us what's real and what's not because I can't decide for myself and we already just read about how they don't think we should think for ourselves. So then they're going to start labeling it. So you have online big brother censorship as the reaction. What's the ultimate goal? The ultimate solution is removal of free speech on the web. Or we could talk about the goal of centralization of power. If you wanted to create centralization of power, what you do is you manufacture a terrorist threat then, then people will react, save me from the boogeyman, and then based on that anticipated reaction, they know psychology better than anyone. They know us better than we know ourselves. Then you end up with the ultimate solution of the removal of our freedoms and the transfer of power from the many to the few. It's called the Hegelian dialectic, and it works like this. We, the Luciferians, provide a problem. You, that's me and you, provide a reaction that is anticipated, and together, and by together they mean just them, we will provide... A solution. So, what does this have to do with the Fourth Amendment freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures? Well, do we see this happening today? Do we see an, any examples of the Hegelian, Hegelian dialectic unfolding before our very eyes? I believe we do. There's an agenda of global tracking, complete, utter police state. How are they going to do this? Well, you, you could do it through potentially a manufactured pandemic, so that people say contact tracing. I want to know where everyone's gone. You gotta you can't use cash. You know, see signs up all across the country, and we've traveled all over since the pandemic. Signs everywhere, don't use cash, or you got to leave your name and phone number, uh, you know, so they can contact tracing, right? When was that even in the nomenclature before this? Not commonly. But the ultimate goal is the forfeiture of individual rights and full-spectrum control. So, back to the virus. So, Moderna uh, is the one of several companies that the government has given billions of dollars to in the race to come up with a vaccine. Now, first of all, keep in mind that there has never in the history of humanity been a SARS coronavirus vaccine. SARS-1 still has no vaccine. Secondly, remember that for any vaccine, and I just looked this up last night, it, it, on average, it takes 20 years to develop a vaccine from full de- development in the laboratory to all of the testing to eventually full deployment, 20 years. In fact, I'm told the shortest vaccine development on record was seven years, and yet in less than a year, people are going to line up to have uh, the coronavirus vaccine. So um, it's being a fast track. Now, Moderna, one of the companies that has been given uh, over a billion dollars in grants, Um, as their name implies, their COVID-19 vaccine works by recoding people's DNA by injecting them with new RNA, that's where the RNA in their name comes from, instructions. And scientists don't know if the DNA changes will be permanent or temporary. Now, keep in mind, Moderna only began publicly trading on December 1st, 2018. And they have never brought a single product to the market. I mean, I'd like to, I've done... I've never brought a single product to the market either. Can I get a billion dollars? I mean, not by works could use it, frankly. Um, The vaccine will be delivered through what is called a microneedle array, which is the short way of saying a human implantable quantum dot microneedle vaccination delivery system. And this was funded, of course, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is from 2017, July 17th, 2017 in Smithsonian Magazine. Easy as putting on a Band-Aid, and and you see the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation up there in the right-hand corner funding this. Um, And notice, I don't know if you can read it on the fine print there, but it should be available in about five years. Well, it's about four years when the Moderna vaccination is supposed to come to market in early 2021, so they were pretty much on target. This is not something that just came about. So it's administered by attaching something similar to a Band-Aid to your wrist. This is from the article. The Band-Aid then injects the vaccine into your skin via small micro needles that are about as tall as two hairs are thick, right? Um, And after wearing the Band-Aid for a short length of time, you can discard it, and the vaccine is invisible to the naked eye, but it can be read by a smartphone held over the vaccinated area. Now, what else does it do? Well, the enzyme that is uh, used to help this do its job is called luciferase. Now, you can't make this stuff up. I knew I would get that reaction there. Luciferase, the enzyme, was first discovered by a French pharmacologist named Dubois back in the 19th century. So, this is nothing new. They didn't invent Luciferase. The name has been around. We have no idea why he called it Luciferase, and it would be, you know, a little bit of an overreach to try to speculate. But, I mean, it's worth noting that it's called Luciferase regardless of why it might be called that, but it's luciferase is a generic term for the class of oxidative enzymes that produce bioluminescence and allows the biological process to be commonly viewed and seen, and and all the activity in the cells can uh, be seen. And I read, according to current opinion biotechnology medical journal, that, quote, opportunities for using luciferase continue to expand. Um, So, luciferase, okay? That's what makes Moderna's COVID-19 vaccination readable long after the victim has been injected. Luciferase. I just like to keep saying that. Just maybe it'll sink in. Luciferase genes can be produced in the lab through genetic engineering for a number of uh, purposes. Uh, The the readable, bright, but invisible luciferin light shines out of the vaccine, and it's a patented information delivery system. The patents go back decades. Uh, But just what is it delivering? Well, it's reading information detected in your body. Things like your blood pressure, your temperature, diseases, but it also has the capability for delivering much more information, like your physical location, your bank account information. Have you been immunized? It's basically an you know immunity passport, right? See, so they're not gonna have to, you know, put a gun to people's head and say, take this vaccine. I mean, that's you know, people think, oh, we gotta stop the military from doing that. That has nothing to do with it. They're going to get all the low-hanging fruit first, which is most of the people in our society will line up to do it just like most of the Christians in World War II helped get people on the trains. And then those who don't want to do it because they think for themselves, they'll say, fine, you just, you can't go to the grocery store, you can't get money out of the bank, you can't go shopping, you can't travel, you can't get on a plane. This is already happening in China. Satan's co-conspirators have been talking about this kind of thing for decades. Uh, Carol Quigley, former Georgetown professor and Bill Clinton's mentor in his famous book, Tragedy and Hope, in which he exposed the plan of the Council on Foreign Relations and Luciferian elites to do this, he said uh, that basically uh, we're going to come to the point where man is numbered from birth and followed as a number. Brzezinski, again, worked in the Reagan administration, among others, he said, soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen. The most uh, personal information about every citizen will be tracked. He also noticed, said that this is going to be gradual. See, they always do this gradually, right? The trilateral plan, referring there to the Trilateral Commission, which under David, David Rockefeller appointed Brzezinski to start the Trilateral Commission, um, you know, we're going to do this gradually, Again, a reference to gradual here. The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Dresden James, a British television writer and uh, 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 author, said, When a well-packaged web of lies has been sold gradually to the masses over generations, the truth will seem utterly preposterous, Preposterous, and its speaker a raving lunatic. He goes on to say, and I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's in my Spirit of the Antichrist series on YouTube, he said something to the effect of, look, it wasn't the fact that the world was round that caused people to get all up in arms. It's not like they said, oh, the world's a globe. That's a big problem. It was the fact that it wasn't flat (laughs) because they had believed the lie for so long, right? Uh, Pat Miller, author, said, the best way to take control over people and to control them utterly is to take a little of their freedom at a time, to erode rights by a thousand tiny and almost imperceptible Reductions, right? You know, today wear a mask. Tomorrow, who knows what? Dresden, James again. The most perfect slaves are therefore those who, which blissfully and unawarely, enslaved themselves. I didn't show this cartoon this morning, but again, what are they going to do? It's my second service. <laughs> I thought this was pretty funny, actually. Uh, we, we all draw the line somewhere, right? No masks, that's where I draw the line. Well, okay. No mandatory vaccine, that's where I draw the line. Well, okay. No biometric digital chip, that's where I draw the line. Well, okay, I'll get on the train. That Walt Whitman, the, the uh, famous American poet, he was by no means a model of morality. But I don't know, he might have been onto something here when he said, once unquestioning obedience, once fully enslaved. And this picture... Uh, stuck out to me. We've all seen ones like this from World War II, Uh, the crowds, you know, hailing Hitler. Uh, But this one was interesting. Here's this guy. I don't know anything about it, but here's one guy in the whole picture, right? Do we see people like that today? (laughs) When everyone else worships the government, are people going to be willing to think for themselves and stand up? Speaking of the Nazis, uh, Joseph Mengele, Uh, the angel of death, he was called, he said, the more we do to you, the less you seem to believe we're doing it. And William Blum, who worked in the State Department, said, no matter how paranoid or conspiracy-minded you are, what the government is actually doing is worse than what you imagine. So, you know, the Fourth Amendment gone. I mean, what's next, right? Is there ever a time to resist the government? Well, the Bible certainly think so. Peter and John, we see them resisting the government leaders, and it wasn't just the Jewish leaders they were resisting. The Jewish leaders were in cahoots with the Roman government leaders. We ought to obey God rather than them, they said, 500 years before that. There were three Hebrew children that stood up to Nebuchadnezzar and said, we're not going to serve your gods, right? This is nothing. New. Even Jesus Himself, by the way, didn't teach blind pacifism. On the night He was betrayed in the garden, He told the disciples, look, If you don't have a sword, let me suggest you go sell some clothes and buy a sword, right? We might sum up Jesus teaching this way, love thy neighbor and pack thy heat. (laughs) So is it ever appropriate for citizens to stand up against tyranny? What is tyranny, by the way? Tyranny is unrestrained exercise of power, unjustly severe government, despotic abuse of authority, and tyranny is nothing new. I mean, we've seen this throughout biblical history, throughout human history, but even in modern times, we you know, we could think of you know Caligula, Genghis Khan, Henry VIII, Ivan the Terrible in Russia, or Robespierre's reign of terror during the French Revolution, or Stalin or Hitler, or Pinochet in Chile, whom we put in power, by the way, or Pol Pot's killing fields, or Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un. So, I suggested the principle of love thy neighbor and pack thy heat. Maybe, maybe it would be better to say love thy country and pack thy heat. If you know history and those who don't are doomed to repeat it. So how should we respond? Well, very simply, remember the words of Proverbs 22.3. And someone reminded me this morning, this is in Proverbs twice. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself but the simple pass on and are punished. That's the New King James. Here's the living Bible. A prudent man foresees the difficulties ahead. This is a paraphrase. And prepares for them. See, we're never to be scared, but we're to be prepared. If you're not prepared, that's when you have trouble. Now, the people in World War II that came out were the ones that hit out, right? Saw it coming. Were thinking for themselves. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. A prudent person sees trouble coming and ducks. The simpleton walks in blindly and is clobbered, or a wise man thinks ahead. A fool doesn't and even brags about it. So are you prepared? Are you prepared? What do we do when the country we love becomes the country we fear? So those are my thoughts very briefly about God, the church, and COVID-19. So much more we could talk about, but hang tough. I think we're, we're in for a tough ride, and it's only just beginning but remember, God's paying attention. We can trust Him. David reminded us, in the Lord I have put my trust, right? He's on the throne. His eyes are watching. Elsewhere, David said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I, of whom shall I be afraid? So a storm is brewing. The wind is picking up. The waves are crashing louder and louder. By the way, the next phrase that you're going to hear bandied about in the Operation Mockingbird state-run controlled media is twindemic. If you haven't heard that already, you heard it here first, but I'm already starting to hear the chatter. There's the pandemic, and now we have this resurgence, and so they're going to call it, it's a twindemic, and we're going to have to do everything we did earlier in the pandemic, but we're going to to do it much worse because it's much worse the second time around the twindemic. For some people in some parts of the country, the winds are already at hurricane force, but remember, what Jesus said, why are you fearful? Why are you fearful? He rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, amen, and there was great calm, great calm. So there's always great calm when we stay close to the Lord, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just for your word, which brings us comfort and hope and gives us a true north, when we don't even know which way is up or down. We have a firm foundation. Lord, we, uh, we pray that as we navigate these unsettling times that our faith would be squarely, and you thank for, you for Bible-teaching churches like Candlelight and Bible-teaching pastors like Paul Van Noy that are not afraid to stand for truth even when they come under attack and are building up the, the body here through the teaching of your word, which strengthens our faith. And Lord, most of all, we pray if there's one here within the sound of my voice, either watching this on video or here in the building that doesn't know your son and our Savior, I pray that today in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sins. He's the only hope for salvation. And I pray that they would trust in him and him alone. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.